Hello and welcome to a very special Fair Trade Fortnight edition of the Building Better Business podcast. And it's not just special because it's Fair Trade Fortnight, it's special because we have three fabulous guests. And also we're going to talk a little bit about climate change and its impact on farmers, how bad it's getting and what we can do about it and what it means really. I'm delighted to say we've got in the studio today Sir Tim Smith, co-founder of the Eden Project. If you haven't been to, I'll be amazingly surprised and you must go there. I must say it's an amazing experience that brings plants and people together, although I did find, Tim, that the um, zip line was beyond me, but there you go. So wonderful to have you here. Also another founder, Claire Rhodes, founder of Producers Direct, a farmer-led charity that is there to support smallholder farmers across Latin America and Africa, and that Claire founded 13 years ago now, Claire. Great to have you here too. Thanks so much, John. A real pleasure to be here today. And finally, it's fabulous to have Ed Gillespie with us as well. And I have bumped into Ed a number of times over the years, uh, an activist, a director of Great Greenpeace, an environmental entrepreneur and host of a quite amazing podcast series that's well worth a listen, which is the, the Future Noughts. So great to have you here too, Ed. It's a delight. Thank you, John. This is live. That's why I'm speaking this way and feeling quite nervous. But uh, we'll also make sure that it's available to listen from Friday. So we'll, we'll get it out there so it's on all listening platforms, including the Cafe Direct website. And you will have noticed, hopefully, in the pre-marketing of the event today, that every listen to our podcast series during Fair Trade Fortnight will get us planting trees in Peru. So please do listen and we'll get planting. Let's get into the discussion. As I said, really, I think we want to cover the subject of climate change in, in three different aspects. Firstly, we'll focus in on how bad the situation is for smallholder farmers. I think then, if it's okay with everybody, we'd rewind and ask ourselves, how do we get into this situation? And I'd like to do that from a perspective of, if we understand how, are there things that help us to get out of it? And then finally, what can we do about it? So that's our structure for the, the chat with the team today. First and foremost, in terms of how bad the situation is getting, and I think for everybody here today, we wanted to think about it from a, a farmer's perspective on the ground. And it'd be great to hear from you, Claire. I mean, you, you're working in an organisation that's run by farmers and is acting in the best interests of farmers. How have you seen climate change impact smallholder farmers' lives and the landscapes in which they operate, I guess, over the last 13 years? And how's that accelerating? And then by all means, Ed and Tim, feel free to interject. I think maybe also uh, just to credit uh, Cafe Direct and the origins of Producers Direct as well. So what John humbly didn't mention when introducing uh, Producers Direct is that Essentially, Producers Direct evolved from the smallholder farmers that Cafe Direct sources from across uh, Latin America and East Africa back in 2009. So I just wanted to recognize the pivotal role of Cafe Direct in, in establishing Producers Direct. Uh, but if we step back a bit and think beyond coffee, which um, is a lot of what we're focusing on day to day at the moment across Cafe Direct and Producers Direct, um, I think what people don't often appreciate is just how many smallholder farmers there are in the world. So over 1 billion smallholder farmers in total mm. across a very broad range of agricultural commodities, both food crops and cash crops, uh, but also uh, managing forests as well. 
So 80% of the world's food and commodities are in some way uh, supplied by smallholder farmers. And so when we think about the role that smallholder farmers need to play in the climate crisis that's confronting us, they're pivotal, not just in terms of feeling and being at the forefront of the impacts of climate change, but also in, in their role in, in driving their solution. And I think when we think about kind of how much of a challenge it really is for smallholder farmers, the thing that we need to recognize is that on a daily basis, um, an average smallholder farmer who's typically earning less than $1 a day, they're facing numerous risks on a daily basis. So uh, that includes uh, changing climate conditions, but also economic volatility, pricing and shocks. And they're managing that huge portfolio of risks with very little information about what they can do in order to address these challenges. So that's, that's the, the big kind of challenge to start with. Across the network that Cafe Direct and Producers Direct works with, so over 1 million smallholder farmers, in the data that we've collected, 95% of them are reporting that they're already being impacted by climate change and have felt that over the last decade. And at the same time, most of them then are also saying they don't have the skills or the knowledge to know what best to do in order to confront those challenges. And so I think that's, that's a really uh, significant issue. We've seen a lot of the kind of the data and the scenarios from climate scenarios. And, you know, if you think about coffee as an example, uh, I saw uh, recently an article from the University of Zurich, which was saying by 2050, most of the areas that are currently suitable for coffee will no longer be suitable. So that's a 30 year time frame. And so we've got 30 years to support the smallholders who are currently growing coffee, either to adapt or become more resilient, or actually to be able to, to really um, look at what they need to do to address those challenges. On average, at a coffee bush, um, the lifetime of a coffee bush is 30 years. So if smallholders need to actually be planting uh, varieties of coffee that are resilient to climate change, they need to start planting those now in order to actually be prepared and resilient in 30 years time. So the time frame to actually address the challenges is really considerable, as we'll talk about a bit in a minute. But in terms of the immediate impacts, you know, I mean, I think um, we've seen um, even kind of the onset of frost you know, frost in tea and coffee can wipe out the average smallholder's coffee income for the whole year, because one frost can damage that crop uh, irreparably. And so if we think about the challenges that an average smallholder is facing, it's, it, in some situations, it is really an issue of kind of, um, you know, a real life and death livelihood issue for them that's happening now, not just in 30 years time. Ed, can we bring you in? How do you see this? I mean, and maybe beyond coffee as well, because as Claire pointed out, there are a large number of smallholders in a number of aspects of the food value chain yeah i mean i think it's worth taking it from different angles i mean i totally agree with what claire was saying about the kind of understanding of from the public perspective that 80 percent of our food and drink comes from the smallholders because you know you'd be forgiven for thinking that the kind of the major narrative was always being supplied by the big agri businesses but actually you know in reality it's not even if there's lots of commodity trading that goes on in between i think claire's right i think this inherent volatility of prices as the climate becomes more turbulent and, and has become quite predictably more turbulent because for those of us sort of long in the tooth who have been working on this stuff for decades i mean this is a sort of slow motion car crash that's been coming towards us for decades and it's very difficult when we're sort of stuck in this terrible short termism where everyone's trying to live hand to mouth uh, and avoiding all of that absolutely essential long-term planning but i think perhaps more worrying and perhaps more topical in a contemporary sense is the way that that can also then impact on on social unrest and i think it's broadly accepted now 
that certainly the Syrian civil war, which is also still raging, uh, in case we hadn't forgotten about that in the context of what's going on in Ukraine, was at least partly driven by climate change impacts, which affected the productivity of the Syrian breadbasket in the Middle East, uh, which then caused rural depopulation, people of different ethnicities ending up in the cities and creating the kind of political uh, tinderbox, which then blew up into a civil conflict. We have to look at it from that big interconnected food system perspective as well, is that climate change makes the whole system much more brittle and fragile. Obviously, we're all very concerned with what's happening in Ukraine right now. And that's whilst that's not directly climate change related, although you could bring in all sorts of issues around fossil fuel dependencies and other aspects which are also relevant. You know, Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. It provides about a quarter of all European cereals and about half of our corn and about 90% of our sunflower oil. But also this has ramifications globally because places like Egypt and Lebanon, which have had their own share of disruption, are also heavily dependent on wheat and grain from those regions. So climate change makes the whole thing worryingly fragile. We could look towards these different breadbasket failures if we don't look after those small farmers that keep us all fed. Fantastic. And Tim, can we get your perspective as well? And then I want to come back around again. Well, gosh, I'd love to be asking Claire lots of questions, but one of which, which maybe you could think about, is I, I would love us all to be informed about the true situation of taxation, tariffs, and all the rest of it to do with the import of coffee, for example, to the wider Western world. Because I'm an ignoramus here, but I keep reading things about the fact that we keep talking about what can we do to put things right, while studiously not taking on our own lawmakers and financial people to put things into a fair perspective. It sounds a bit of an old fashioned word, but I think I've heard you use it, Ed, about the need for a moral compass and the mm. the shift from a consumer society to a citizen-based society. I mean, they're not either or, as we know that. I didn't wish to be simplistic, uh, but I think one of the things that has inspired me over the last two years has been conversations with people who are supposed to be quite grown up and then realizing how fundamentally stupid most of us are. I mean, I'll, I'll include myself, but it's like, used words like, they will sort it. I mean, since I was a teenager, they were always going to sort it. And we never realized that maybe 15 years ago, they died. There is no they, because the they has been taken over by a class of politician, for example, who uh, see popularity, marketing themselves, if you like, as being what they do as opposed to leading uh, by setting some sort of example. Mm -hmm. In fact, Claire, why don't I shut up and let you give us a perspective against which to maybe be hard hitting as opposed to having a, an hour long chat at which at the end of it, no one remembers bugger all. Well, I don't, I don't well, I shall. <laughs> That's your green light, Claire. That's yeah, your go green for it, light. Go for it. Well, maybe a disclaimer, I'm not also an expert on, on tariffs and things like that. I mean, I think the, the fundamental problem is that people still aren't willing to pay for the food um, that's produced and willing to pay for, for that food to be produced in a way that enables farmers to farm sustainably and also be resilient to climate change. You know, and you think about that in the context of fair trade, you know, that, that was the messaging that fair trade set out to really kind of enable consumers to really engage with the true cost and the need for farmers to kind of achieve a fairer price. And that has kind of shifted understanding um, across consumers hugely over the last 30 years, but more needs to be done. If you think about what actually is required in order to have a sustainable farming system, and then the market forces that smallholder farmers are subjected to, they're completely at odds with each other. 
you know, a typical smallholder farming system, right back when farmers were farming more traditionally, was much more diverse and actually enabled farmers to be much more resilient in the face of climate change, because they had less economic dependency on one main cash crop. And so therefore, if one crop failed, they still had the rest of their farm in order to rely on. But market forces and kind of efficiencies of scale typically have driven, you know, a tendency and a preference for, for monoculture, kind of, you know, as you were referencing that, that's what people tend to think about in terms of a, an efficient farming system. And yet, actually, in order to, to drive the financing that's required for farmers to farm sustainably, that there needs to be market forces that enable farmers to manage a diverse system that's resilient. The question I was hoping you were going to answer, sorry, John, this is awfully rude, um, <laughs> was about the fact that when we go into our supermarket and we spend, let us say, £3.79 pence on some Cafe Direct coffee, uh, I've made that price up, I'm just hoping that's about right. I am of the view, this is not truth, this is just what my perception is, that the person who produced the beans that led to that coffee, the original producer, gets a really tiny proportion of that. And uh, could you perhaps tell us about that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think um, some of the systematic changes that need to be made are, if you look over 20 or 30 years, Tim, you can see where the value has gone in any of these things like coffee or tea or the wheat and, and corn and so on that Ed was mentioning. And if you look at it over 30 years, and by the way, with the backdrop of a car crash slowly moving across everybody, you can see the value going to, you know, large uh, Western multinationals to middlemen, as you touched on Ed earlier. And actually, if you look at the cost of farming uh, for a small family who's become more dependent because of market forces on one crop, and you look at then the cost of climate change mitigation, which is in their backyard, it's quite profound in terms of the prices going down and the costs going up. I think um, to the point that was made earlier, we need to do something about this, but we also need to have regulatory changes and other systematic changes that get us to have a moral compass because it will get to be too late, won't it? You know, when you started, Claire, and you talked about 30 years and you won't be growing coffee in certain areas, that that will be phenomenally devastating for all of us. And um, to your point, Ed, the social unrest that will come with these kind of um, changes mm. is is going to be pretty horrific, isn't it, really? Well, yeah, and also it just it just puts farmers out of yeah. out of business. I mean, we know that there's a kind of a problem with the recruitment of farmers, of people within families not even staying farming, mm. you know, of those kind of critical commodity crops. But I mean, in a way, if if we want to get punchy, and I'm going to rise to Tim's challenge here, is I, I think that point that he was starting to articulate about this sort of shift in story is so fundamental because. You know, if you like the history of so many of these cash crops is so embedded in sort of colonial extractivism, where, you know, it's very much a sort of subject mat story where, you know, the farmers are subjected to the pressures of, you know, colonial exploitation and they were providing us with the crops that we demanded they produce, whether that be coffee or sugar or bananas. And then we got into the, like the consumer story, which is the sort of model of what John Alexander talks about in his book, Citizens, you, you know, where... I think the whole ethos of fair trade is like, can we as consumers, and I hate that word, make markets more moral, you know, in this sort of virtuous triangle of business, activists, customers, you know, and the smallholder farmers working together. And I think the answer is quite brutally is like, yes, we've made some inroads into that, but ultimately is no, you know, and while the coffee market is worth $200 billion a year, you know, 9 billion of that 
is done through fair trade. And even some of those farmers struggle to sell the, the coffee at the premium price because there isn't a demand for it. So we're still dealing with a massive market failure, which is where I think Tim was sort of pointing. Is like going, why can't we sort our stuff out? Because there is fat in the system there. There clearly is. Yeah. When you're buying your three-pound flat white at uh, a coffee shop, and the coffee that goes into that probably costs about 10p, of which the farmer gets you know a fraction it's like that's where the problem is there is plenty of fat in the system but we're so obsessed with our own consumer rights where the consumer is king and in that old school dominance kind of exploitation sense you know that we've missed the fact that these are just transactions rather than relations and if we had a genuinely citizenship style approach we would treat these farmers as our brothers and sisters who are producing something that enhances our lives and should also enhance yeah. their lives and if we can't get our heads around that you know then you know we, we need to go back to the drawing board really and try and have a radical reinvention and reimagination of the way those trading systems are functioning so ed do you think that claire and john if they were being really radical would set up a coffee house chain that actually is the end point as well as the start point monitor. I mean, this is the thing is I, we are so confused with certification, I think, you know, from a sort of punter's perspectives, let's call them shoppers rather than consumers or, or customers even, because there's 460 different labels now, I think, which are various different shades of sustainability. And that's led to such a massive label fatigue and confusion and people yeah. like broadly wanting to do the right thing. And I think, you know, when if I put my greenwashing filter on, uh, one of the reasons I don't do so much sustainability consulting work these days is because I utterly lost faith in the abilities of so many of those businesses to deliver whilst yeah. sort of simultaneously deluding themselves that they're doing the right thing and definitely deluding their customers who are trying to do the right thing. Yeah, I think you're right, Tim. I think, you know, we need that transparency. And, you know, I'm, I, I've joked about this before, but I used to run experiments with school kids, you know, where you gave them all a different role in the kind of supply chain and you got them yeah. all to represent that role and bid for their share of the price that came that the customer was paying at the end point and when they were revealed you know who actually got what i mean even the school kids were livid because fairness yeah. is one of the most visceral intuitive human reactions oh you're absolutely right we stole that idea from you and do it at eden <laughs> <laughs> well no i mean i think you know you're, you're describing with great passion the unfairness that is out there and is in all of mm. our lives and to your point tim you touched on should we have coffee shops we should have ways of connecting farmers and citizens consumers shoppers whatever and helping people to see beyond the labels beyond the the, the narrative and get a real understanding of how to be fair it's a really important point the the, the last thing i was going to say was how did we get ourselves in this position <laughs> i mean what i will say john is like you know in this sense People always say the system's broken, the system's broken. And my great friend, Kate Simpson, from the system craft agency, Wasafiri, who does all sorts of work around the world, which is really compelling. She said, the trouble is the system isn't broken because it's working for someone. Yeah. And it's the thing is, it's not yeah. working for the producers and the small farmers. It is working for all of those intermediaries. And we got into that mess by, as I say, I think having that aspirational, positive ambition 20 years ago that customers could help influence this. And 
unfortunately, especially in recent years, we've seen this sort of corporate capture of fair trade through their own in-house certifications, you know, which is often, as I say, a bit duplicitous and a bit in denial. And is another sort of form of corporate paternalism where they mark their own homework on what they're doing for the smallholders yeah. in their supply chains. And actually, they claim it's about flexibility, but it's about control. It's totally about consolidation of their own control of those value chains. And, you know, and that's the really, really dodgy bit. So we got into that mess by allowing people to, to mark their own homework. And I think uh, just to pick up on your, your point there on control, and I think, you know, we're talking about sort of uh, trade justice, but the other thing also I, I wanted to kind of bring to the table is the democratization of data. And at the moment, the, the control on, on data and what's happening under these different climate scenarios, that is incredibly still being held within you mm. know, the, the big multinationals. You know, um, we, we, we see their programs on CSR in terms of, um, you know, um, sort of supporting farmers by, by planting a, a few trees, which, you know, arguably is, is a tiny kind of investment compared to the size of their company. Meanwhile, there's absolutely, you know, there's, there's millions, if not more, going into private research on what will happen under different climate scenarios, but also then what that means for being able to shift an entire kind of supply chain from one country to the other if, if the crop in that country fails. And so, you know, you're seeing also the concentration of power in, in the information that is being held by these big companies. Smallholder mm. farmers don't have that. No. You know, they, they have no idea what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis in relation to, to climate scenarios, let alone what's going to happen mm. in, by 2050. And I think, you know, if we talk about kind of how we get into that situation as well, we've also, we've allowed the, the research and the information about the potential consequences, again, to be kept in the hands of a few, mm. and essentially enhance the power that way as well. But it's not like we couldn't have some of that power back, could we? I mean, many small farmers no, exactly. will still have mobile phones. Yes. You know, and as you say, there's such a, a multi-billion dollar industry in crop and commodity price speculation in terms of derivatives and futures. You know, and as you say, that information and power is being held by the people who are speculating on those people's livelihoods in effect. And and why can't we put that that genuine power back into the decision making on the ground so people will know what the trajectories of what they're dealing with and even some of the short-term meteorological consequences because yeah. you know that could be made accessible if those bigger players in those supply chains were prepared to democratize and give access to it. There are two things I want to say. The first is from memory one of the problems we have with these basic crops you know the coffee banana tea and so on is that the IMF uh, or the World Bank, I can't remember which, when they were dealing with loans to countries that at that time were called developing countries who got into trouble, they often asked them to go into primary crops as a way of strengthening their economy, which meant that the bizarre lack of economic understanding of people running the IMF was shocking because now everybody's growing bananas, the price plummets through the floor. So it was a, a terrible, terrible decision. I, so I, I'd love... Uh, first of all, maybe Ed or John, you could corroborate that. And the second thing is something that Claire was talking about, which stimulated a thought, which is that the funding of coffee and the 30 years replanting and everything, you were talking about the need for resilience and having a mixed agronomy. Well, what is happening now, and I know the, the, the three of you are aware of this, but the research that's come to light over the last, mm, let's call it, three years about mycorrhizal association of fungi in the soil and so mm. on is screaming at us that the monocropping which we've always known is a problem but actually one of the remediations isn't that suddenly coffee is an unviable crop in Somalia or something 
it is that we need to look at it as a whole system. That if you start to look at it as a system, exactly as you were suggesting with a mixed agronomy, you could do quite a lot of repair and protection. We were talking about the, the monocropping and, and the, the dependence and also the fact that then that's degrading the environment, it's worsening the situation. And Claire, could you just comment a little bit about changing the way smallholder farming operates? And do you want to talk a little bit about how you are changing beyond a monocrop? I mean, I think if we look at sort of what kind of recommended practice um, is currently on, on what it takes to have climate smart or climate resilient landscapes, it's really looking at how you diversify it at multiple levels within a landscape. So if you imagine a landscape that's a mixture of different crops and farming systems, but also ideally areas under forest management, areas where the, the watercourse is being protected, essentially you, you always need a multi-stakeholder approach where you know, smallholder farmers are being supported to flourish economically as well as environmentally, kind of sustainably by managing um, a diverse and resilient farm. So looking not only at the balance of the crops being managed, but also the Soil management, uh, Tim, to your point on and kind of the opportunities to invest in soil health and, and how they're managing the, the water and the irrigation within their farm. And then if you imagine then kind of scaling that up to um, kind of beyond the individual farm level, you're looking at how to support a group of farmers who might be managing diverse crops, actually be able to farm that and benefit collectively. Uh, but also be able to access markets for the diversification crops. And then essentially also thinking about who you need um, in terms of stakeholders within the landscape that can support kind of the aspects of the strategy beyond the farm level. So who can support with uh, local communities uh, managing their forests and, and managing the water as well. Mm. And so essentially it puts quite a lot of pressure then on the different stakeholders within the system, both individually and, and how they work together. So for example, Cafe Direct sources from and Producers Direct works with cooperatives. Uh, typically they're owned by smallholder farmers. And typically they also focus um, primarily on the coffee. So you're asking a cooperative to transform from being a coffee business to essentially managing all of these different aspects within their landscape. So not only being a specialist in the coffee, but also being a specialist in the other crops that their members need to grow in order to be resilient. And then also um, know who to bring in in terms of you know, supporting them with other aspects of managing the landscape. Mm. So it's a massive shift in terms of the expectation on those cooperatives, when actually all they're basically trying to do is survive the season. You know, Their priority is, is just to get enough for their members on, on the coffee. So the step change we're asking is, is significant. And what Cafe Direct and Producers Direct have been doing is really looking at what systems need to be in place, both at the farm level and at the landscape level to enable cooperatives to make that transition. Mm. And so we'd be looking at what data services do cooperatives and farmers need in order to be able to preempt climate changes and respond to them, what training and information services need to be in place in order for them to then adapt. And then also crucially, what are the financing kind of pieces that need to be in place in order to help the farmers and also the cooperatives to make the investments that they need to at the farm mm. and also at the landscape level in order to have a climate resilient landscape. So it's, you know, it's, it's something that needs to be planned not only over one year, but it's, you know, it's a 10 year kind of time frame and strategy. So it requires huge collaboration and coordination between different stakeholders to achieve it. But it's amazing when you see the outcomes of it. I mean, I totally hear what you're saying about the challenge, Claire, but I've moved recently moved back to, to my home roots in Norfolk, you know, after 20 years in London. And I'm finding it very difficult to look at my sort of childhood perspective on the countryside, you know, with my sort of old, grizzled, 50-year-old sustainability perspective, because it is just this kind of set of barren monocultural fields. And what Tim was saying about that sort of micro-risal relationships, I mean, I 
there's a farm down the road here, which is an agroforestry project, a place called Wakelands. You know, they took over a corner uh, of an old arable field and have done the agroforestry complementary planting with trees and other sort of leguminous crops in between. And it's like an oasis of biodiversity. It couldn't stand in more contrast. You get far more food per unit of land in there, and it's healthier and more vital and more resilient at the same time. And, you know, when you see an aerial photograph, it's just surrounded by these barren fields. You're like going, what have we done? What did we do? And that's the exciting bit. If these smallholder farmers can also, as well as being given the data, can also be given the vision uh, of what is possible and that their livelihoods may actually be enhanced through all of this, then you can hopefully start to reconnect with some of the more traditional practices that were bumped out by so-called commercialism. But I think what's going to be fascinating for us, assuming that none of us get struck by lightning or run over by a bus, is within probably 10 to 15 years, agriculture in our country is going to, uh, by our, I mean Britain, is going to change beyond recognition mm. in the post-Brexit settlement. What is so interesting about this is that all over Britain, I'm now meeting youngsters, or by youngsters, I'm in the age 20 to 30, who want to go into what used to be called when Ed and I were young, market gardening, which is intensive growing of maybe rarer crops. And what is really astonishing is, do you know, it was big agriculture invented the phrase heritage crops to try and make people persuaded that it was of the past. Yet those heritage crops, which were so twee in places like ours at Heligan have been preserving them for the last 30 years, is because they're the only damn crops that will survive in a post-fossil fuel injected world. This is hugely important also, uh, Claire, in your work, because we're very honoured to be working on a project in Lake Chad. And boy, is it humbling when you realise it's not a siloed answer for anything, that there are so many variables that need to be biologically put together, whether it be the gender politics, which need to be beautifully nursed so that the men think that it was their idea. So, for example, we're looking, and I think it's something you may have looked at, Claire, which is the growing of balanites, you know, the tree which gives you the resins that go into a lot of expensive perfumes. However, most families that would grow balanites for you, uh, say in Chad, they are so poor that they would cut the trees down for firewood before it was ready to be harvested. So actually, if us four were to go into a project, you're thinking, what quick wins that will give us a seasonal immediate return can we put in place to enable people to have the patience with the other crop? And that other mm. crop will then actually, with its roots, stop soil erosion, create, you know, sorry, you know all this, but we're, part of our conversation is about solutions. And I think there are there are some solutions. I think also, I mean, Ed, with your work at Greenpeace, I think there's some really hard questions that I think Cafe Direct should be asking. You know who of? People like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson about if you found a planet that was half as fertile as Burkino Faso, you would be having a wet dream. Hmm. Therefore, sorry, I didn't mean to be coarse, Therefore, why don't you prove that you can make Burkino Faso actually like the planets that you want to go to in the future? Mm. I've, I've phrased that incredibly clumsily, for which I, I, I apologise. But you know the point I'm making? I think there's a danger that fair trade and the sort of conversation we're having is almost irredeemably associated with a kind of liberal ethos that we, all of us on this call, wish it wasn't because we wish it was actually for everyone 
I think we've got to be a bit more rock and roll about our approach. The fact that what we say in terms of the lines that we uh, are saying here is one thing, but to get people, you know, on the Clapham omnibus to be talking about this sort of stuff, we've got to find a bit of a, a more jazzed up, relevant language, which when we talk about our commonalities with our, the sisterhood and brotherhood out there, that we actually make it sound not like a bunch of people who've never actually met a working class person or, or someone more diverse. I think we've actually got to be doing that sisterhood, brotherhood thing in a much funkier way. One of the best things I felt in the last few years and you know, before the pandemic, because we, we weren't able to go and see farmers in the pandemic, but Claire took me to a farm in Peru. And it's to your point, Ed, where you were being positive a second ago, where this husband and wife were showing you their farm. And if you go and see coffee farms or tea farms, there's usually pride about the monocrop. The pride they showed in, it was in Peru, so it had um, guinea pig farm that they built from scratch where they were providing protein that they could sell in the market and they could feed themselves. Then they built a fish farm and they had a number of fish ponds where they were growing fish. And then they were using the, the organic fertilizer from the guinea pigs to make the soil better for the coffee. And then they had a wonderful, amazing vegetable garden that they mm. built. And it was tiered down the side of the mountain. And the pride in that achievement. And Claire was taking a number of farmers to look at this and go, this is what you could do with your farm. It was just like you were saying a minute ago, Ed, it was just like chalk and cheese. Suddenly they, they could see a real vision for their family in the future for their family. It was remarkable. And it sounds beautiful because mm. it is. You yeah. know, to <laughs> say there's far more richness and beauty in that, you know, when you mm. start to look at it in the round. And we have to do so much more of that. I mean, without getting technical, but, you know, the one of the best reviews of the economics of biodiversity, the Dasgupta Review that was published a year or two ago in the UK, so we've reduced our natural capital, you know, all of that ecosystem wealth and resilience by about 40% per capita in the last 25 years. And the key thing for navigating the next 25 years is going to be restoring that. And and it has to go back to that. And I think, you know, touching on Tim's point in regard to the Clapham Omnibus, it's like we're supposedly, well, we are experiencing a cost of living crisis in the UK, which is in a sense our sort of slightly privileged wake-up call to a cost of living crisis that the vast majority of the world experiences on a daily basis. Now, if you can't build a degree of global solidarity around that, and maybe the language has to be funkier, but, you know, this is for our collective collaborative benefit. And, you know, if we can see where we can make a difference in terms of the way that we buy and consume our goods and services and the knock-on effects that has, then it completely flips these ideas around, you know, what constitutes aid and what constitutes real and vital trade on which human civilization is built. Let's engage with a few questions from the audience. Let me just see what we've got here. I mean, there's a question here, and it's targeted at you, Ed. It's quite a big one. Ed, do you think that fundamentally capitalism is broken and this is what's <laughs> causing these broader issues and continued economic growth can no longer be the measure we use for success? So it's a question and a statement at least. I go back to what I said earlier. I mean, capitalism broken because it's working for the people at the top. You yeah. know, we've, we've not got trickle-down economics. We've got trickle-up. Essentially, the system is robbing people all over the world, and that includes people in the UK as well as people in, in, in the nations that we're talking about spread yeah. out around the globe. In that sense, yes, it is broken, but on, only from the perspective of if you're, if you're at the bottom or if you're in the lower echelons. I do think we need 
growth, but I'm going to massively caveat that and say it's going to be growth in restorative and regenerative agriculture. It's yeah. going to be growth in renewable energy. And this mindless pursuit of, of growth per se is the problem, although we will see areas of the economy have to grow really, really fast. So I think there's a very complex debate around you know being anti-growth or degrowth. Because I think just the language itself, you know, I mean, we're all here talking about growing stuff. We love the idea of growth. You know, growth's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, unless, unless you're a cancer cell. And unfortunately, you know, that's, that's the problem. We have to have a very nuanced perspective of what sort of growth we need and which growth is genuinely and authentically revitalizing, i.e. putting the life back into our trade, back into our soils and back into the lifestyles of people. Can I just say to your listener, always remember that the word culture originated with culture, to cultivate. Always remember that academia began with Plato starting the first school in the garden of the hero Academus, <laughs> i.e. you should be learning in the presence of nature. So I think what Ed said is, is absolutely great. It's not capitalism being broken, it's the fact that the moral compass of it is such that it, it is uh, uh, not beneficial for all. The danger for us is that we look like beardos. Well, I mean, Ed's got a beard, but what I mean is, <laughs> is, 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 is uh, Edward Said talks about othering people. And one of the things that is really difficult for the world of commerce to fight is somebody who's not saying your system is an enemy. It is your moral compass that is an enemy. And I understand your system. They, the people fear you knowing what they're about. Mm -hmm. They have no fear at all of ranting people who don't really understand capitalism, but just blame it for stuff. And that's how we lose power rather than gain it. Whilst we've got you in full swing, Tim, can I get a question to you? This is a, a second question from the audience. Um, why do we have the choice of buying unfair products? We're not allowed to buy products that are harmful to us as customers. So why are we allowed to buy products that harm other people. Everything is about storytelling. You could actually make a sustainable business out of making landmines. Just depends on the story you're telling. Mm. I think there is a misunderstanding about both Ed and you and Clara mentioned it about the conflict between citizenship and the freedom to consume. And I think that, that we failed if we had a Declaration of Independence. If we wrote it now, it would have to say things like it would do no, no harm to, to living things. And in fact, probably if Ed was prime minister, it would say nothing may be produced that is not part of a cycle that can be identified from beginning to end and back again, i.e. like in nature. I think the mantra for me has been, you know, stop selling us exploitative crap. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's, uh, as Tim's alluding to, you know, circular economy stuff uh, and making sure the materials that are in the system are the ones which can be recycled, reused, reinvented and reimagined within the system. But, you know, I, I think we're all actually, if we pay attention, a bit exhausted with the fact that there is an obfuscation and a smoke and mirrors that comes from the businesses that sell us things where they want to have the transparency which is comfortable for them but they don't necessarily want to always have the hardest questions asked of them because when you get to the nub of that you know essential needs could be abundantly met it's all of these avaricious materialistic yeah. wants and desires which are are actually the core of the problem most of which are artificially cultivated 
Thank you. I'm going to keep trying to move on with some questions. I'm going to try and, try and target this unfairly at Claire. It's a question that was picked up a, a little bit earlier on, which I think you touched on, Ed, which is a question here from Lakshmi, who's saying, what about the other actors along the value chain and what kind of roles can they play? Whilst Because it always feels to us like it's all about the consumer changing their behaviour, which I think you touched on quite clearly early on. But I, Claire, could you just build on a few thoughts of that, on on what other actors should take the weight off the consumer? Uh, what I would say is even if all actors within one particular supply chain were willing and supported to collaborate, that in itself would be a significant step forward. You know, for example, if we think about how data is currently collected both to support uh, certification schemes to enable the consumer to make informed choices through to kind of requirements on carbon footprinting and things like that, there's a huge set of inefficiencies within the supply chain where all of the actors are operating independently. And by kind of joining forces and, and working together, actually efficiencies and economies of scale could be achieved that mm -hmm. would make some of these issues to support consumers being more informed. It would, it would make it a lot more cost effective. So I think that would be my first recommendation. And then I think, so secondly, again, within, for, um, for example, coffee value chains, you might get one intermediary that's working with multiple end suppliers of the branded coffee product, for example, in the UK. And again, um, where there's opportunities for a pre-competitive collaboration, uh, looking for the opportunities and, and building on that so that then um, we can enable kind of actors within the supply chain to come together and, and collaborate on these significant issues that ultimately can't, can't be solved by just independent actors working individually. So I've managed to mm. answer that while ducking, pointing fingers at anyone. <laughs> it's giving give me a chance to say, Ed, Tim, do you want to come in on this one? Again, I think it's unfair for the responsibility to be continuously pushed back onto customer choice. That, that everyone is supposed to have to make these informed decisions, navigate the kind of the landscape of labels and try and make the best choice possible when they're completely overwhelmed by all of that. And if we extended the idea of of citizenship to the businesses themselves, many of those intermediaries, you know, and I mean that in the genuine sense, many organizations will try to describe themselves as responsible corporate citizens. Well, let's take that to the actual, you know, the deeper yeah. meaning of it, I mean, which is stop screwing people over. And, and, and again, I, I don't think if, if you look at any one of those big businesses, part of the problem now is when you get the kind of the reverse activist shareholders, as we saw uh, Danon, you know, who was trying to move towards more responsible practices. And then they get the sharky investors who say, you know, you're being distracted from your profit making. Well, I mean, if the profit making has to take a small hit in order to do the right thing, then we also need to be active uh, as shareholders in these organizations and lobby the funds which go into them to say it's not profit at all costs here. Because again, as I say, there's fat in the system. The trouble is that fat is extracted by a very, very small percentage. I think that's really interesting. I, I think there's something else we could do if we were not frightened of being thought of as being a bit wet. <laughs> well, I think Polly Higgins is yeah. the, the poor yeah. late. Polly Higgins yeah. has worked with Ecoside. To my shame, I remember when she began that campaign, I thought that's really sweet. That's never going to catch on. And what's actually happened has been, as the years have gone by, more and more serious people have got drawn to it, more and more serious people have seen a problem that is just not being remediated. And it's got more and more muscular to the point that, mm. you know, uh, the, the European court is looking at how it could enforce it. If I was to say to you, Ed mentioned earlier on natural capital, 
it's a phrase I I would suspect neither of us much like because I think there are there's a kind of by just doing that it's almost as if the natural world has been turned into a financial agent as well, which is horrible. But what I would say in terms of absolutes is that as Homo sapiens, there are a number of things: clean water, clean air, clean soil, which are the we could say are the birthright of our species or the commons in some way. And I think we could, we, we need to be far more forceful in referring to companies making business decisions, which affect what we might call the commons and call it for what it is. Not that they're naughty boys. They are treasonous. It is treasonous to the human race to be doing these things. And that is as, as bad, whether you're in Chennai and your wells are bringing up arsenic because people have, you know, drained the water table. There are all sorts of, you know, we could go on forever about it. I just think we have become too consensual mm. and polite in our anger which means that we have a negativity about us, everything's bad, which itself is uh, demotivating, as opposed to having the righteous anger of how dare you socialise with people who pollute our rivers. Yeah, are you aware that if you go swimming in the River Wye, the river on which there's been more poetry written than any in Britain, it is more likely you'll get a sanitary towel around your gills than you'll see the gills of a trout. Honestly, it's that bad, yeah. and yet we've lost the ability to be utterly incensed. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I say I live above a river, and as you say, we've, we've let those, particularly those water companies, off the hook in terms of their maltreatment of our common heritage. Yeah. Unbelievable. The discussion, I it was heating up. I think it's been fabulous. A huge thank you to Claire and to Ed and to Tim. And also a big thank you to all of those of you who are listening to us and have asked questions. I think it's been really thought-provoking for me to hear about the strength of boldness we need to have. And that makes me think like we have to do things with the right approach and do the right things even more so than ever before, of course. But it's a huge thank you to all of you. As I said earlier, it'll be available, this, this live podcast, as a recording from Friday. Keep listening, get your friends to listen, and we'll keep planting trees. And we are doing a second series of the podcast in the spring, so look out for that too. But thank you to everybody. And I think rather than me closing, I'd like to just ask each of our esteemed guests for one last thought. Ed, give us one last thought. It feels like we can end up, whilst trying to do all the right things with all the good intentions, that we're still constantly kicking the can down the road uh we know if we invest now that we save for later so we have to rekindle our sense of the imagination of what is possible because as charles eisenstein famously said a much more beautiful world that we feel in our hearts is possible uh, but we're not going to get there by doing the things that we've been doing historically claire i would say achieving global climate resilience and food security for all requires us to invest in the world's 1 billion smallholders as leaders. Uh, they need the power of data to be able to act on the climate challenges they're facing, and they need investments in training and market access in order to be the leaders of the solution. And Tim? That being beige is not an option, that if you're a successful businessman that makes your money with an immoral compass, be aware how uncool you are, your feet smell, your breath is bad, and you're never gonna be a superhero. Thank you so much and um, thank you everybody for listening and God, we should do this again. But no, thank you all. Yeah.